HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> So what do you think about our new pre-roll music there? It's kind of catchy, kind of energetic. Gets me in the mood to talk about all the things that are facing us as houndsmen. Talk about the current issues of the day. I like it. Let me know what you think about it. The reason it was changed is because we had some harmonica music on there and we had a houndsman hit us up and say, man, get rid of that stuff. And I was kind of in agreement with him. I, I ran that for a few weeks, but... We got some new beats going on there. 
Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. I am your host, Chris Powell, and I'm bringing you a great show. I've got my longtime friend. You know him as T.L. Jones. You've read his stuff on Facebook, I'm sure. I call him Tracy. Tracy has been a friend of mine for a long time. We've um, stayed at each other's homes. We've hunted together. He's just one of those guys that makes you think. And I like having friends that challenge me, challenge my thinking. They're not just going through life, accepting it how it is, but trying to figure things out. And when I've got Tracy on the line, it, it provokes thought. Tracy is, you're going to hear his story, but uh, the reason I wanted to have Tracy on this thing was because of a particular post, and I'll read it, but it was about Fair Chase, kind of sp- followed up on a on a podcast that that we did with Boone and Crockett and this is the next segment to get us thinking about fair chase and where we're at and why houndsmen have such a hard time talking about this in a way that is logical and justifies our lifestyle not that we need to justify it to anybody so to speak but in reality we really do in this day and age it seems like we've got to justify everything we do and this conversation will help you prepare for that conversation when somebody challenges you and says hey hunting with hounds isn't really fair it's not really ethical this should all be put to bed after this podcast right here and that's always our goal at the houndsman xp podcast is give you tools whether it's training a dog catching critters or battling the ignorant public that might challenge why we do what we do pretty proud of that we cover it all heath is covering a lot of training stuff over on wednesdays on the journey we're talking to the top handlers in competition coon hunting on friday seth and chad are rolling out all kinds of crazy stuff they just dropped one with a guy named the python cowboy this guy's taking donald trump jr hunting he's taking stale cracker hunting He's got a lot of good information about invasive species and stuff that I didn't even know was going on in Florida. They're using dogs down there like we use strike dogs for big game and hogs. They're doing the same thing on iguanas and boa constrictors and pythons and all this other crazy stuff. I guarantee you you will not get through that podcast without laughing your guts out. It's a great one. So check out the journey. Make sure you're checking out All Mixed Up. And make sure you're checking out The Truth with Josh Michaelis on Fridays. Also, check out our website at houndsmanxp.com. I think I'll just do a little bit of a giveaway because I know some of you are skipping this pre-roll. This is to reward the people that listen to me gab and talk in this pre-roll. So I think what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to challenge those people to go to our website go to our new shop and send me an email my email is chris.houndsmanxp at gmail.com i want you to send me an email and tell me the two things that are in that store right now we got more stuff coming but right now what's in our shop go to houndsmanxp.com click on the shop tab and tell me the two items that are in there email those to me by april 1st and i'll put your name in a drawing we're getting ready to drop a bunch of cool merch there tumblers 
and decals and shirts and hats and all kinds of stuff. I'll put together a package for you and send that out to you at drawing time. So go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the shop, tell me the two things that are in there right now. Send me an email by April 1st, I'll put you in a drawing. And I'm going to make a big deal out of it on Facebook. A lot of stuff we talk about in this pre-roll is very important. It's not just about the guests. It's not just about hearing that part. But we drop a lot of information in the pre-roll. You need to be listening to those. I hope you are. If you are, I'm going to reward you for it. Thanks for tuning in to listen to the Houndsman XP podcast. We got a hot one here. It's a box shaker. It's time to get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. All right, I've got my old friend, Mr. T.L. Jones, on the podcast. Tracy, you've been up to a lot of a lot of stuff in the hunting community lately. You're writing for Bear Hunting Magazine now? Yeah, I started that a couple uh, episodes ago, and I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, yeah, well, I couldn't ask for, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better person that uh, Colby could have got writing that article than you with your history. Let's, uh, let's just introduce the, everybody to you and uh kind of give a history of your family and and where you're from and all that stuff we'll just start right there and then we'll jump into uh to what we're going to talk about today all righty go ahead i guess you want me to go back and give a little bit of the history on how we uh became involved in hound hunting is that what you're looking for there yeah we'll talk about let's talk I don't know how many generations past your grandfather, you, uh, your family goes back and hound hunting or even your history in the Appalachian mountains. But, uh, thought we'd just kick it off right there and talk about all of it and, um, and spin off of that. Okay. Well, my influence came from my grandfather, you know, down here, we call them papaws, but some places, if you say papaw, people are not sure who you're talking about. So that's, that's grandfather to us. Right. But uh, my grandfather is, you know, my, where I my, mine was Papaw too. Just so you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah there in southern Indiana has a lot yeah. of uh, similar characteristics. I think, yeah, for sure, for sure. So yeah, your your grand your grandfather, your Papaw was go. We'll just start right there. Let's start right. Let's start with with Barry. Well, he told me that his dad was actually a hound hunter, also. Um, they hunted primarily fox and bobcats, but mm -hmm. I didn't, his, his name was Spencer Hunter Tarleton, but I never knew him. He passed away long before I was born. And, but I guess that he influenced his sons to hound hunt. And I think there was just off the top of my head, I think there was eight or nine brothers and one sister in that family. And at wow. least I'm thinking at least three of the brothers were uh, really hardcore hound people, mm -hmm. uh, two of them primarily coon hunted. And then my grandpa, Barry, he coon hunted and, and of course po they possum hunted back then because they mostly had possums. Coons were very scarce. Um, he hunted different types of dogs. I know, uh, he had some great dogs. I've got a picture of him and three of his brothers from October of 1954, which is really a great picture with a couple of great looking dogs. 
one looks like a black and tan, the other looks sort of like a red bone. Mm-hmm. Um, they have three or four coons in that picture. Um, they lived in the mountains, and uh, the way they hunted, you know, they didn't drive somewhere and turn out for 45 minutes or whatever. They walked from their house, mm-hmm. and they would walk. They might walk all night long and not be back till the next morning, and they would hunt from ridge to ridge or holler to holler and like that. They weren't in any hurry. You know, they, their plan was to hunt. So they'd hunt all night long. And then, of course, to them, they were so poor that they actually, you know, they ate whatever they caught, whether mm-hmm. it was pot or coon or whatever. And in fact, my grandfather told me that if they would catch a live possum, they'd put it in a trap and fatten it up just like you would a hog and wait till it got big <laughs> enough for the whole family to have a meal. <laughs> oh, man, different times. And you're talking about East Tennessee. Uh, right there. I know exactly where you're at. Cause I've been down there to your house several times and, and bear hunting with you and, and Ben, and I even got the opportunity to bear hunt with, with, uh, your papaw, Barry mm-hmm. Tarleton. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's worth spending a couple minutes just to, uh, bring honor to your grandfather. He was, he was somebody that made a big impression on me, uh, hunting with your family, having that opportunity m- has made a big impression on me over the years um both in the way i view hunting and bear hunting and and the appreciation that i have for for that region of the country i've always been um it's often overlooked the importance of the culture right there where you're at and uh even in american history you know everybody wants to talk about the rocky mountain mountain man and the fur trappers of the rocky mountains and and we overlook the deep rich history of of the region of Appalachia that, that we just we overlook it yeah it's one of the jokes that I like to say around folks is I love to watch an old western but I've never understood why they don't make easterns they should because there are some fascinating stories in the in the Appalachian mountains and even along the seacoast the New England seacoast and all the way down through the Carolinas yeah the frontier yeah. and uh the native Americans and so forth. This it's fascinating history and just as much wilderness as any place West. It, it was the original wilderness. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm working through a book by Alan Eckert again. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's called the frontiersman. And it tells the story of, of settling Kentucky through Virginia, which came right through your country right there. And people that, that don't know that history, it's, it's every bit as exciting and, I have never figured out why they haven't made a movie out of, uh, the book, the frontiersman. So I think it's, uh, just a spillover. We've got some, you know, last of the Mohicans and the Patriot and stuff like that. But, but, but generally it's overlooked and it's unfortunate that it is. Yeah. You would think they would do something with the, over the mountain men that left from East Tennessee and went over to king's mountain and defeated the british there which really was a major turning point in the revolutionary war yeah i I had i think he was about my fifth or sixth great grandfather that was shot in that battle uh robert severe he uh, he was the brother to the first governor of the state of tennessee severeville uh, tennessee and that's named after your uh family would be my uncle on my dad's side yeah wow wow that's something uh, else my his fifth or sixth great grandfather Robert Severe was shot there at Kings Mountain and died nine days later walking home. Yeah. 
Wow. So a lot of, a lot of fascinating history. My dad's family came into the uh, area here about the same time the Boones came in and settled. And uh, Daniel Boones, you know, he was born in this county, but his family moved off the river bottom where they had their original farm and moved about two miles from where I live now and opened a mill. The mill flooded and washed them out of business. And then they moved on down toward uh, Morristown, Tennessee and opened a tavern. So he, I, you know, we lived within a couple miles of where Boone lived. Where, in he fact, was, where he was born or where he lived? I thought he was born in Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Davy Crockett. I'm sorry. Oh, Davy Crockett. Boone. I don't. Um, well, we're going to get here. into the Boone and Crockett thing here in a minute. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I've got tongue twisted on that deal because just recently I had a guy take me to a tree in the mountains up here and show me where it was marked. Uh, Daniel Boone killed a bear here and has the date on it. I saw that with my own eyes. And what, uh, he, what year, what would that have been? I don't know. I've actually got a picture of it on my phone, but I've been sworn to secrecy on the location of it because I'm told East Tennessee State University is researching it right now to see if it's legit. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm waiting on the results to see, but I've been there. I, I took a selfie with it because, I mean, you just don't it, – it seems legit to me. I've looked at the, some of the other trees that have been uh, declared legit, and I've seen this one. It's a massive, massive tree on a creek bank. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm not even going to, I don't even want to know what type of tree it is. Cause I don't want people out looking for it. No, uh, they would never, they would never find it. So that's all the information I'll say, but uh, that's right. I've seen, I have seen it with my own eyes and took a selfie of it. And if they ever square it up and make it legit, I'm hoping they will uh, do something about um, working with the landowner there about to preserve it. For sure. For sure. Well, let's get back to, let's get back to, uh, you know, we're working down from there. You're, you've got deep roots in Appalachia. Um, when I, when I tell people, you know, about Appalachia, I always bring you up because even though you've, you've lived in Montana and you've traveled and lived different places, East Tennessee has been your home and it's been your family home for a number of years. And, um, like I said before, you know, I was, I was deeply impacted when I got the opportunity to, to come down and hunt with you and your family, but especially your grandfather, Barry Tarleton. Um, yeah, think, Barry, my grandpa, Barry, he was, a, he was a fascinating individual. Uh, he was, he, he grew up dirt poor and, uh, somehow out of that poverty, he developed a sweet spirit mm -hmm. and he loved, he loved people and people generally loved him. And, uh, he, didn't know a stranger and you know a lot of appalachian people especially mountain people are shy about cameras right but my grandpa was just the opposite man he if you had a camera he wanted in front of it and he just <laughs> he loved it he you know he loved to laugh and have a big time and so he he was coon hunting and he got to tree and tree and bears ever so often and during that time period, which I'm going to say was in the late fifties, early sixties, some of the dates I can't be dead set on. Uh, we know that he gave my cousin Charles a plot pup in 1965. So we date the beginning of Houston Valley plots from 65, but yeah. I know he had plots prior to that. Um, he met Von plot. I've got a picture of him and Vaughn and Gene white and uh, Rube Cutchaw and old mountain men here. I've got a picture of them together. Well, Vaughn told my grandpa, Barry, he said, uh, Barry, if you're going to bear hunt, be serious. You need to hunt plots. 
and uh, you know papa had tried other things and in fact he had even ordered some pups he told me from uh the uh, lee brothers he had a couple of blue ticks he had had shipped in from out west and he tried those and but after Vaughn convinced him he should try plots somewhere along there, he hunted with uh, Vaughn and some other men down in Gatlinburg before Gatlinburg was Gatlinburg. Yeah. Know anything uh, but a collar on the dogs. And uh, he told me that they would assign ridges and you would go to the ridge you were assigned and you sat there all day just waiting to see if the dogs came your direction. If you did, your responsibility then was to keep up with those dogs until uh, you couldn't keep up with them any longer. And the next guy on the next ridge was supposed to go from there until they killed it. Mm. So he tried to buy some dogs from Vaughn and Vaughn refused to sell him anything. So, um, he told me his first plot came out of Kentucky. I've never been really able to verify what dog it was or where it came from. I'm not sure if it was even register plot, mm -hmm. but uh, in the early seventies, around 70, 71, right in there, he met, uh, Gene White and Gene White and Papa became really close friends. And some people ask, well, did your dogs, were they white hollow dogs? Then and the answer that's no, because Gene didn't have a stock then either. He was just starting. Okay. And so, uh, Gene, um, ended up with a dog named white hollow jr and my grandpa hunted with that dog on several occasions and just absolutely loved him he thought he was what a bear dog ought to be uh, bragged on him often uh, even into his old age and uh, he got a pup from gene that he brought up to the house a female pup and the pup was doing real well but a bear caught her and injured her uh, severely to the point that she was healthy enough to, that she lived, but she wouldn't be able really to hunt anymore. Yeah. Her, her name was Jap. Jap, J-A-P, right? Uh, if you'll, that was one of Gene's uh, brood females, his stock, so to speak. So Papa took Jap back to Gene and traded it for a young female on her papers that's called Roberta. Yeah. And Roberta uh, was a good dog. According to my grandfather, I was really too young to know or remember. Um, he loved her and kept her into her old age. Um, she eventually, after she got too old to bear hunt, she was a yard dog and a pup raiser. And uh, I even rabbit hunted her. <laughs> and, uh, but anyways, uh, they bred her. And uh, all the dogs that we have now, for the most part, go back to her. There's, I think we're, I'd ha I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks. I I'd have to recount. But the last time I counted, I think we were 14 generations deep now. Amazing. And that was Tarleton's big Roberta, if I remember that name right. Is that right? Uh, just Tarleton's Roberta. Just Roberta. Yeah, just Roberta. Okay. That was her papered name. Her actual call name was Polly. Okay. I never even knew the dog's name was Roberta until I was probably, well, I was about 10 years old and I was looking at the Coonhound uh, bloodlines. Mm -hmm. I believe it was, I think it was a Coonhound bloodlines or the MPH yearbook, one or the other. 
sitting there in my grandfather's living room and I went through those books, you know, I was, I was looking at that yearbook and I saw a dog named bear pen Bronco and realized he was out of the Roberta dog. And, uh, my grandfather at the yeah. time, uh, we didn't know the filters personally at the time, but I, I talked my grandpa into letting me call Hammond filter. So I called Mr. Hammond and I, I mean, I was just a kid. I was probably like 10 or 12 years old. And, um, talked to him on the phone and uh, we ended up agreeing to buy a pup out of Bronco and he brought it down to us and met us here on the north side of Greenville on the bypass and we had a good long conversation with him and my grandpa and Hammond made friends and uh, we got that pup and uh, in the discussion we didn't know how he had a pup out of Roberta and he explained to us that they had bought a pup or got a pup somehow from Oliver Smith who owned Big Timber. Mm. and that pup didn't quite make the grade for humming and uh, oliver smith had got a stud fee pup for my grandpa where we had bred roberta to timber so he gave his stud v pup to humming and steve for uh the dog that didn't quite work out for him mm. and of course i think steve now says that bronco was maybe his all-time favorite i believe that's his his view of the Bronco dog, but, and we had, we had a litter mate, uh, to Bronco. My grandpa called big John that he really liked a lot. So, um, it was a good solid litter of bear dogs. It sounds like, well, you know, I was pretty young then and I have to be careful about talking about things that far back because, you know, um, your memory only serves you so well. So I just, I share what I know for sure. And I try not to get into details that may be, not exactly right, but yeah, I know for I know for sure Steve loved Bronco, and I know my grandpa loved Big John, and I couldn't speak to the rest of the litter. And then you guys had a you guys had a a dog down there that was a descendant out of one of, out of that cross when I first started hunting with you. It was the um, and what was that dog's name, Tracy? He was a really dark colored dog, uh, probably the last real good bear dog that your your grandfather probably remembers uh or hunted and uh ben was just coming on and hunting at the time too he, i've actually got him in you remember which one that would have been um you're probably talking about the papa took a female to wisconsin and bred her to a male dog up there rock no or no that's right to, um trigger Yep, Trigger. Dog named Trigger. And Patball had two males, one named Henry and one named Doc. Doc is the one. Doc yeah, is the Doc one. Doc was dark colored, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Roberta was bred several times, and she threw good pups out of uh, different litters. Uh, I referred to her as a blue hen. You know, horse people, racing horse people, you know, they referred to a mare that throws good colts as a blue hen meaning it really don't matter what you breed her to. She has the genetic power to carry the load. That's a new term for me. I'd never heard that before. I'm going to start using it though. I like it. Yeah. Sometimes you, I mean, breeding is both a science and an art and a mystery. I mean, you can know all the genetics you want to, but still you can't determine what's going to pop out. I mean, it's right. just, uh, right. and people can argue that all they want, but it's factual. You can make, what you think is going to be the greatest cross in the world. And it might not be. And so I've seen two dogs bred that I wouldn't own throw an absolute phenomenal litter. 
So it's just the weirdest thing sometimes with breeding, but the blue hens, uh, you can have a dog sometimes that just carries the load. I mean, they just have enough. I don't know what term to use genetic power to, to just do it. Yeah. And, uh, she was that way. And they eventually, um, took a, a female out of her that we had and bred it to, uh, let's see how this worked. Uh, let me think. There was a guy down next to, uh, below Newport. Can't think of the name of the little community he was in right now, near Dandridge, I think. His name was Gant, Charles Gant. Yeah, that's a name uh, people should know. Charles Gant was uh, really popular for a while for having dogs that were extremely gritty. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa wanted to get some more uh, grit in his dogs, and so... We went down to Mr. Gantz on several occasions. I really enjoyed being around him because he was so blatantly honest. Uh, I've told people this story before. We were standing in his dog lot there one day, and he had a big male plot that had a curled tail that looked like an elk hound tail. <laughs> it, was his, it was his own dog out of his own stuff, and he just looked at it and said, that'd make somebody a good squirrel dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he moved it along wasn't going to keep breeding it into his, into his dogs. He just didn't like, like it. But, uh, <laughs> so we, my grandpa got a male pup from him and it was a smooth coated dog that, uh, had a crook in its tail. Uh, and we didn't know at the time, you know, it, we didn't know, was it broken litter or what, but it turned out to be genetic mm -hmm. about, uh, about three fourths the way up the tail from the butt to the tip. It has a severe crook in it. And, uh, the more my grandpa looked at that, the more he hated it. And finally, he decided he wasn't going to keep the pup at all. So my dad said he wanted it. So he took it. And uh, actually, dad would only keep one or two dogs at a time. And he he loved to look for tracks. And there was bear population was low then. And the men who went and found the tracks would only take one dog. Mm -hmm. And once they found a track, they would actually a lot of times leave the dog on a lead and let the dog track it up till they got it jumped on a lead. I and can't he, even imagine doing that down there in that country. That is, yeah. that's I'm, a different breed right there. They were old school and tough. And I mean, they just, um, if you found one bear track every three or four days, they weren't going to lose it. Right. And, uh, Hector was dad's, uh, favorite dog and just, uh, good all the way around. And they bred Hector to, uh, I think it was Roberta. I'd have to look at the paper. I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was Roberta or one of her daughters, but out of that came a litter of uh, really consistent dogs in looks and ability. My cousin Charles, um, who is probably the unsung plot man of the family, not a lot of people know Charles, but he's carried a lot of the weight for the dogs over the years. He don't like to be uh, in front of the spotlight, and he's real quiet, and he just soon uh, people not know him. But is, he's a good is, is Charles Rocky's dad? Charles is Rocky's brother. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, Charles, uh, he knows the plot history really uh, extremely well, studies the papers a lot, and uh, uh, he's always made real good breeding decisions. Well, he bred his female – 
at one point to a dog that came from Curtis Walker that a friend of ours owned uh, out of Curtis's stock. Mm-hmm. And West then Virginia plots. Yeah. Then Charles kept a male out of that and bred in it to a pup that Papa had at the time. And then most everything we have now uh, is out of what we call the Dan and Ann cross. Uh, Ann was a real nice dog. Charles's Dan dog was real nice. And that produced three or four litters that were really uniform and uh, heavy on the tree power. Mm-hmm. They sent me one to Montana that was about 14, 16 months old, something like that. I don't remember his exact age. He'd been started on bear and was doing good. I took him out there to line hunt him. I'd been in college and I'd been out of hounds for a while, got to Montana and they sent me one and I showed him a cage coon. He didn't even know what it was. Wouldn't even bark at it. <laughs> and, uh, a friend of mine had a blue tick. We brought the blue tick over, got the dog barking at it. He realized, Oh wait, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be in trouble for this. I'll bark at it too. Right. So like the next night I just took him down on the river and free cast him. He went and treed coon. And, uh, shoot, it wasn't long till Ben was wanting to go to a night hunt. He'd heard me talk about them and I said, well, I'll take you to one. Well, we had to drive about three and a half hours over to Billings to go to a night hunt and got over there and it was a world qualifier. I didn't even know <laughs> we were just going for fun. Right. And, uh, got to the world qualifier. And just as my luck always is, I drew out with a dog that had won the region the year before. Yeah. And, uh. But we played along and went, turned them loose. And, uh, when it was all said and done, I had three seventy-five plus and no minus and took second in the regional with a dog had coon hunted maybe a dozen times. Yeah. But I knew him. I knew that I'd hunted the dog enough. You know, I knew uh-huh. every move about him and I just didn't take minus as what, what won. He, he wasn't a coon dog probably that I, we beat that night. I just, uh, knew my dog a little better. Right. Is that the same dog that you brought back here and you, you did some hunting with, uh, is that the same dog that you hunted in the ACHA or the AKC hunt? No, that was a different dog. Okay. I think that yeah. was hit. Wasn't that Henry? His dog, that dog's name was Hyde. Hyde. That's it. Yeah. Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of when we started, when I got to know, uh, you and Ben is you guys were hunting out of Greensburg and, and, uh, came up through here and stayed with me and, and uh hunted that that hunt up at greensburg yeah when i first moved back from montana um uh we're getting way off base here but it's a little bit about how much i love plots uh when i was a kid uh you know people loved to rag each other about what breeds they hunt and the more they ragged me about plots the more loyal i got and I'm, I'm not color. <laughs> I'm not colorblind. I know a good dog when I see it, and I will right. give it credit for what it is, no matter what it is. But uh, and I've owned some other dogs, but uh, I was uh, like, what? I can't remember what year uh, Sizzling Heat won the World Hunt. Eighty-three, I think. Eighty-three or eighty-six in that that time frame, right there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I walked to the mailbox. You know, nobody had a computer or a cell phone or nothing back then. You didn't get any news about anything until you got it in the mail. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't make calls back then because of long distance charges. Right. You know, dude making three dollars and twenty five cents an hour wasn't paying fifteen cents a minute to call somebody. Heck yeah, dad. Dad made sure of that. So 
I walked down to the mailbox there at my grandpa's and checked the mail and there was a UKC bloodlines and had sizzling heat on the cover. And man, uh, you would have thought it was my own dog. I was jumping and carrying. I mean, I was absolutely <laughs> insane, thrilled and applauded and won the world hunt. And, uh, I not hunted some as a teenager, but, uh, when I came back from Montana, I was aggravated that, uh, there hadn't been a plot won the world hunt since bud yeah. won the PKC. And I just told, uh, Ben, I said, I, we can win this thing. I said, I'll have to adjust some dogs to breed some uh, different dogs the way I want them. Uh, but we can win this with a plot. So I began to look over who had what and, uh, what I wanted to do. And you know, if you're going to win the hunt, you got to breed to, for the scorecard. 1988 was the year that he won it. Okay. Yep. I got a yep. picture of uh, him with, with, uh, Jim and Spud right there. I just looked it up. All right, man. I was, I was so excited, but that's how we ended up with the hide dog. I was buying different plots from different people looking, looking for some different traits. You know, I, I'm not going to argue with folks, but the high caliber bear dog and a high caliber night hunt dog are not the same dog. And, different uh, styles for sure. It, it's different. It's different emphasis. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was going to do that. And then Ben got old enough to start going with me. And really, we just didn't, we just learned not to enjoy it anymore. And I just gave it up, but, um, it's a, it's, it's a fun game. Right. Right. Well, Ben, Ben has kind of taken over carrying the torch for the Houston Valley plots. Now. I mean, that guy, I don't know if I know anybody that hunts harder than Ben. Ben's Ben's a wild man. He was I knew when he was I think I hunted with him the first time when he was 13 years old. And I've never had a 13-year-old kid be able to outwalk me, but he put I mean, he yeah. punished me in the mountains. And um he's just been going ever since. Yeah, he really took to the to the big game hunting and the bear hunting and you know, Houston Valley Plots now, I think, is coming on, um, well, 2015, I believe, was the 15th, was the 50th year from 65. We count it from 65. And the three people most responsible for what Houston Valley Plots are would be, of course, my grandfather and then my cousin Charles and then Ben. Mm -hmm. And there's been, there's been other men hunt them just as hard as, uh, Papa and Charles, like my dad was a hard hunter. Rocky's a hard hunter, but Papa and Charles made breeding decisions that, uh, worked out. So yeah. Papa, Charles and Ben would be the three people most responsible for what they are now. I, I joke a lot that, uh, you know, I was born into a family where my grandfather was, uh, he was a heck of a man. My dad was a man's man, a Vietnam veteran and really hardcore and Ben's really hardcore. And I'm sort of the flunky who got born in between all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, I'll tell you what, I think you're, I think you're the, uh, philosopher of the bunch and that's, I've always enjoyed talking to you and I've always enjoyed our relationship, Tracy, cause I always feel like after I get done talking to you, I feel like there was value in the conversation that we always had, you know, the, I think anybody that knows you knows you like to have fun and you like to joke and stuff like that, but, but you're not a guy that just talks to be talking. 
And that's the way I've always seen you. And so you're one of those guys that when you say stuff, it provokes thought. It, uh, it causes me to reflect and think about where I'm at. And that's why I wanted to talk to you on this podcast for sure. We could do podcasts about your family and Appalachia. And I mean, we could talk for days about all that stuff, but, yeah. uh, you know, the thing that, the thing that kind of ignited uh, this idea for this show was the thing that you wrote about fair chase, which, um, that that's, that's today's topic. Uh, and, yeah. and then that, that inspired me to, to reach out to Justin spring from the Boone and Crockett club and do that show a couple of weeks ago. And, um, I'd planned on, I'd seen their position on fair chase. Uh, it's been, I'm thinking that they came out with that or announced it about a year and a half ago and just things came up. I got sidetracked. I lost track of it. And I, but then when you posted what you posted on Facebook, uh, then it, it reignited me to get after it and, and, and peel back the layers on, on that position and also try to decide where we're at as a hound hunting community about that position. So, uh, that's where we're at. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I was born with a, um, a high degree of curiosity about the why of things. Mm -hmm. I like to know uh, not just what I'm doing, but you know, why I'm doing it and what purpose it serves and what value it has in the long term. And truthfully, sometimes I wish I didn't, uh, sometimes I wish I could just go along and do what was going on and not be thinking about other things, but that's just not how my mind functions. And we've got a real battle in front of us. If we're going to preserve hound hunting, which is, you know, and I'm more than glad to get away from our family history to this conversation, but, uh, our battle for the future is going to be on the lines of this matter of fair chase. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think I wanted to, I'm glad we talked about your family history because it gives background and shows people how much your family has invested in, you know, what you've, you've also coined this phrase, sacred pursuit. You know, it's yep. sacred to your family. The fact that, that, uh, you can free cast hounds and, and do the things that you love. So I'm glad we covered that because, um, yeah, fair chase. And that is such a buzzword. We covered it pretty good in the, in the original podcast with, with Justin, it was a, that is a term that was, uh, coined or, or started by the Boone and Crockett club. And it's been a term that has been widely accepted. It's been used as a measuring stick. It's been used to, uh, to uplift hunting. It's also been used to cast doubts and, and shadows on hunting. Um, so, so what's your thoughts on that? What, what caused you to, um, to come up with that, that thing that you posted on Facebook? Do you have it? Do you have it handy that you could read it? Um, not without switching off of this thing. All I've got with is my phone and I would have you, to lose you. you, go, to do you go ahead and take care of that. I can do, I can do that. Cause I want to read it. I think it's good that people would hear it, but you go ahead and, and carry the ball there while I'm looking it up. Okay. I will. Did I lose you? Nope. I'm still here. I will just dive into that thing about the sacred pursuit. 
um, for the people who don't know me, I'm a pastor and uh, I've been a preacher for about 32 years, but I'm not on this podcast to preach a message, but everyone to me should have a reason and a basis for how they live life. And my reason and my basis for living life is my Christian faith. And so for me to live a life in harmony with my personal uh, worldview, my way of seeing things has to come in agreement with the scriptures. So Genesis chapter nine and verse two is where I find that God first gave uh, Noah and his family permission to kill animals for sustenance when they came off the ark. And if there are people on the podcast that are Christians and accept the validity of scriptures, they'll understand what I mean by that. But even if you don't even believe there's a God, you still ought to have some reason uh, why you do what you do, except for the fact, I don't know what your basis would be. Now, mm -hmm. if we live in a purely natural world where there is no God and God doesn't exist, then all we're doing in hunting then is participating in the natural course of things. If that's the case, I don't see how anybody has any valid argument against hunting whatsoever. And if we're not in a purely naturalistic world, if we're in a theistic world where God does exist and the scriptures are a representation of his will for humanity, then we have his permission to hunt. So the anti-hunter really has no argument to me. They have no theological argument and they have no naturalistic argument. In the one case, we're following God's will. In the other case, we'd be living according to the nature that we're in. So what we have with anti-hunters is we have a lot of moralizers who have a certain way to view the world that they're trying to cram down our throats and make laws against our way of life. And they have no basis to do it other than the fact they just don't like it. Well, no society should be based just on what you don't like. You shouldn't get to arbitrarily decide what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah, I think uh, the the new term for that is called virtue signaling. You know, <laughs> where where you uh, take your own beliefs and you you put them up on a pedestal, and then you you cast you cast blame down below you on all the people that don't see things your way. And um, absolutely, I've got, I've got that pulled up. If I could take okay. a second and read that, Tracy, I think yeah. it, I think it's very fitting. So this is what you wrote on December 17th, 2022. And uh, I don't know how it hadn't gone viral. I know a lot of people have shared it and uh, a lot of people have shared it without credit to you. But this is what it says. It says, if it is the philosophy of fair chase that we're discussing, I would make the argument that hound hunting is the greatest of all fair chase methods. It's the only method where the game being pursued is fully aware from beginning to end that he's being hunted he's not a buck mindlessly chasing a doe to breed half out of his head with lust he's not an elk being dropped from 500 yards by a bullet he has no sense of coming he's not a boar being ambushed from above entirely unaware of his enemy once a game animal hears the hounds he's fully aware all his senses are in play the terrain is his home, and he holds all the cards. 
and often he uses these things to escape. I'm not against other methodologies. I support other types of hunters. Just don't tell me that hound hunting isn't ethical or fair chase. Yeah. I think that's very difficult to argue against. I've tried. I've, I've, well, I, I'll admit something. When you post stuff, I look at it pretty hard and I, I try to find places to find holes in it, you know, because that's the way I, uh, resolve where I'm at. When I listen to other people and, or I, I see what other people are writing, I judge that against where I'm at. So when I read that by far the most profound, uh, description. I mean, you summed it up there in, in a few paragraphs, what guys like me have been trying to say in 300 episodes of a podcast, Tracy. So I'd really like to dissect it out a little bit, flesh it out a little sure. bit and talk about, you know, the fair chase deal. I know you listened to the, to the fair chase episode with, with Boone and Crockett. And, and I want to say this before we, before we get too far down the road, I value the work that the Boone and Crockett club has done, um, yeah. at the time they formed in the 1870s, wildlife was in real trouble in North America. In just less than a hundred years, we saw vast Buffalo herds disappearing and, and, uh, you know, market hunting was, was running rampant. And some of the things that they've done has been invaluable. I mean, there would be no wildlife on this continent or it would look a lot different than it does now. So everything we're enjoying in 2023 is because of the work that was started in the 1870s by the Boone and Crockett club. And, um, I think, I think our, my biggest, um, my biggest issue with Boone and Crockett on this particular issue is the way that they have defined fair chase for me. And, and they are looked at as an authority and in the overall hunting community. And we'll get into some of my concerns here in a minute, but, but that's where I'm at, Tracy. So you just take it away and describe, you know, tell us what, what your thoughts are. Well, first of all, I agree with what you, uh, said about the Boone and Crockett club initially and getting the animal populations back to where they needed to be and the work that it took to do that. So I don't want to discredit them or just seem as if we're, a, you know, an enemy to that. We're, a, you know, we're a friend of that. Mm -hmm. But in reference to, in reference to their influence, they need to be careful that they don't throw one group under the bus trying to protect a larger community because that's a slippery slope. If you allow say trappers to be thrown under the bus, then you allow hound hunters to be thrown under the bus. Mm -hmm. Then who's next? Right. Right. And that's, that's one of the positions that I have with even Justin on the podcast. It's like, you know, most of our crowd isn't really concerned Hound, I don't know very many hounds. I don't know many houndsmen that taking relief back your deal. <laughs> We're getting hooked back up to Bluetooth here. Um, I don't know many houndsmen that are really overly concerned about whether or not they 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 have a they take a mountain lion or a bear that they're going to enter into the Boone and Crockett record books. Um, 
most of it is all about fair chase. It's about hounds. It's about stuff like that. So my biggest concern is not whether or not, uh, it's not whether or not I can enter, enter a big game animal in the Boone and Crockett record books. It's more about if, if the, the wrong people bring this up in the right meetings in front of the wrong people, you know, we could, we could lose the ability to use tracking equipment. I think the use of our GPS tracking equipment is, is grossly misunderstood by the Boone and Crockett club. Um, and I thought, thought of, think that, that the wrong people, the animal, animal rights movement could use that to take that ability away. So that's, that's my starting point on the, on the topic. I actually think you have to step way back in front of that. If you're going to get down and dig into the root of the matter. And that is you, at some point you've got to ask why is morality applied to hunting at all? That's interesting. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, think about it just for a moment in nature, in nature, if a, if a bull elk fights another bull elk to breed a cow and one bull kills the other one, nobody calls that bull a murderer. Mm -hmm. If a pack of wolves drags down a moose calf and eats it alive, nobody refers to them as murderers. Mm -hmm. If, uh, if a coyote runs in and, and steals a meal from another coyote that he's bigger than nobody calls him a thief in nature, (laughs) in, in nature, there's no morality. So if man is just another beast, if we descended from the apes and we came from some primordial pool of soup somewhere and all we are is we're just another being within nature and there's no higher power, there's no God. And uh, then nobody anywhere has a right to have anything that's moral, none. Not at all. There, there is no moral morality if there's nothing beyond us. It's just might makes right. Mm. And so, uh, at some point, somebody is going to have to tell me when you're making up all these rules, what gives you the authority to make up a rule for me? Why does society have the right to band together to make laws against or for anything at all, period? And most of these anti-hunters and uh, the woke type people that are a part of that whole thing there, you know, they're absolute God deniers. You know, they are totally naturalistic. Mm-hmm. So if I say to them, well, I believe there's a God and this book is his word and this says I can hunt, that's a joke to them. Right. So let me play their game. All right, let's assume we're all just naturalistic we're just here there's no god well first of all that's absurd on a philosophical level because nothing would make sense Uh, even your words and definitions would have no meaning but i won't go that route um but i let's say i sat down with this group of anti-hunters and i asked them okay why are you against me hunting well we believe it's wrong why is it wrong well it's just wrong we don't like it but why is it wrong they don't have any place to go Mm-hmm. There, there's no way for them to describe why it's wrong rather than right. And what I don't understand is how come they view man as intrusive on nature if all man is as a part of nature. So if we're just part of nature, 
there's no difference in me going out and killing something than there is a wolf killing something or an eagle taking a trout. We're just participating in it. Do you uh, believe? Do you believe in wildlife rules and wildlife management rules and laws that govern hunting? I do because I have a reason to. Mm-hmm. I believe that uh, God established three uh, branches of authority. He established the home. He established the church, and he established government. And as long as government is used appropriately, I believe that uh, it honors God. So, yeah, I believe that from that perspective. But these, uh, the naturalist who believes in no higher power and believes in nothing along those lines, he doesn't have a leg to stand on in his environmentalism. Because what he's telling me is not to be who I am. You know, I'm, I'm a savage beast born to a savage mother living in a savage world. And yet all of a sudden I'm supposed to play by some ethics and I want to know why, what ethics does the wolf play by? Mm -hmm. You know, they want to reintroduce the wolf. Why do I want the wolf to be reintroduced? All he does is take the deer I might eat. Right. If there's no, if there's no God and we're just totally naturalistic, it would be really to my best interest to annihilate the wolf. I don't want any competition. I don't see any reason to have any competition. Anything standing in my way from feeding myself uh, has no value to me whatsoever in a naturalistic world. So they're bringing in all these moral ideologies, you know, what's wrong to kill, but they don't have any. See, here's what I don't. What are they basing their moral on? What, What is their moral code based on? That's, I think that's, that's where if I'm picking up what you're putting down, Tracy, uh, the, the, the moral code without fiber, I mean, it's nothing there with nothing to back it up. There's nothing. It's just, it's arbitrary. It's uh, relative. It's one group of people imposing their will on another group of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, ha- they really should not be able to do that. Uh, a perfect example was like in Wisconsin. They re- they reintroduced the wolves in Wisconsin to the point to the men up there getting their dogs killed by the wolves. Right. Now they're using that to say the men are mistreating their dogs by turning them loose to hunt where there's wolves. And then if the men were to kill a wolf, then that would be the most awful human being who ever lived, even if he was <laughs> defending himself. Right. right. Well, that's all based off a philosophy of life they have, which has absolutely no foundation whatsoever, uh, except for propaganda. If, if it's a truly naturalistic world and there's nothing beyond men and beasts and we're here by blind chance and accident, we're just part of what's taking place. And if a, if a wolf pack runs down a deer and kills it and eats it, eats it alive. That naturalist stands there and claps and says, wonderful, wonderful. That's what wolves do. But mm-hmm. if a man who's just a beast runs with a pack of dogs, he's just part of the pack he's running with and kills a bear. He's awful and cruel and evil. Why? Why are you superimposing a set of moral standards on a man? If that man's nothing more than a glorified ape. Hmm. I think we need to get somebody like, yeah, I can't argue. I can't, I can't debate the topic with you. I mean, not, not adversarially anyway, cause I agree with it, but in the case of fair chase, you yeah. know, when, when they, when the Boone and Crockett club came up with that, I'm what, you know, I'm not 
like, again, I'm not casting blame. They're the ones that coined the phrase. So, um, I think, don't you think that they probably felt that, uh, you know, hunting the methods for hunting, you know, riding rail, rail cars across the prairie and, and pot shooting Buffalo from the rail car, uh, you know, things like that. Somebody at some point said, Hey, we got to put some brakes on this thing and, and define what, what ethics are in hunting and what fair chase is in hunting. All right. Let's do that. And, but see what we're doing as we do it, just as a reminder is we're just beginning with the assumptions that man should have ethics that are not natural. You, you see what I'm saying? You, well, if, I think uh, when the, uh, when, when uh, the cool. original, when the original people involved with that, with the uh, Boone and Crockett began to apply ethics to hunting, I'm for that. And I believe there's a basis for that. Uh, and they become the arbiters of those ethical things and begin to put within the minds of men what fair chase was. Mm -hmm. So my question to anyone, Boone and Crockett Club, Pope and Young, or anybody who wants to deal in ethics and morality, my question is, first of all, what's the basis? All right, we've already discussed that, so I won't go to that. Right. The next thing is, as you define it and apply it, who gets to do it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what? Okay, who does get to do it? Well, inevitably, the state does it because the state has all the guns to enforce their rules. <laughs> Everybody right. else is done in theory and philosophy. The state actually, you know, George Washington said, "Government is force." So the state eventually makes the rules because they're the, they're the only people that can enforce the rules. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking for is who influences the state. And that's why we're talking about the Boone and Crockett club by their own testimony on that podcast. They have state arbiters, people who make decisions and implement policy, call them and say, what do y'all think about this? Okay. So that's good because the government is asking hunters, what their opinion is. And I'm glad for that. So it's important to us when they answer that question, not to dismiss our point of view as they answer it and make their definitions a fair chase. It's extremely important that hunters not work against other hunters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be the person, um, that is the go-to, then you need to be able to speak objectively on the things that you're talking about. And, and right now with that position, I haven't looked through this year's legislative, all of this year's legislative, uh, proposed legislation, but every year there comes a bill or a fish and wildlife rule that pops up in these, in these committees that is going to restrict the use of GPS and, uh, tracking for hounds. And it's always said that it gives the hunter an unfair advantage. It's being twisted by the people. It's being twisted by the, the animal rights groups who their main goal is to eliminate the ways we can hunt. They don't just come after don't bear hunt. Don't lion hunt. Don't, don't do anything with your dog. They look for ways to subvert the whole thing by, okay, well, you can hunt, but you can't use a tracking 
device. You can hunt, but you've got to keep your dog uh, in a climate controlled condition. You can hunt, but if you have more than this many dogs, then you need to be registered with USDA as a certified breeder. Those are all things they're trying to take our ability away from us to be able to, to hunt effectively and to do the things that we need to do effectively. You know, in the case of the Boone and Crockett Club, you know, it, and state wildlife managers are supposed to be promoting issues that adhere to the North American model for wildlife conservation. Right. And so the the first tenet of that, you know, we, we talk about who is the voice. The first tenet of the North American model is that um, wildlife is to be held as a public trust. And that's getting harder and harder to do in 2023 with the number of hunters that that are remaining you know we're, we're carrying the torch or we're carrying the ball for for millions and millions and millions of people that don't hunt and that's that's becoming a very very difficult place so where do we you know where do we uh um allow well, that voice to come in and stuff like that yeah you're going to say something you you and I are specifically concerned about preserving hound hunting, right? yes, and the dogs and other what realms. Yes. All right. The first place we have to start is with hunters who use other methods, because there's too much of a propensity for those other groups to want to throw us under the bus. Evidently, there's some mindset among other hunters that says, if we will sacrifice the hound people to the anti-hunters, they will be satisfied with that and leave us alone. But that's not how a predator works. Once the anti-hunter takes care of us and eliminates us, they move to the next group of people, mm -hmm. which frankly, which frankly, I think their next target uh, will be bow hunters. I think bow hunting would be next because um, if, if you just watch even Facebook, the number of deer that are shot that have to eventually be lost or tracked down. And now they're putting it on Facebook themselves mm -hmm. through dog recovery. You know, if you're an anti-hunter and you watch 300 deer have to be recovered by a dog and they're logging how many they didn't kill, that's easy to take in the court of public opinion and denounce bow hunting. So I think they're setting themselves up to be next. Yeah, we just but recently, I we just recently had a landowner who deer hunts in the state of Indiana, uh, post on Facebook that all coon dogs, he posted a picture of a sign, all coon dogs beyond this point die. And this guy is supposed to be a hunter. Um, so I saw that. yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> well, let, that let's, work. Go back, let's go back and defend ourselves along the lines of what I wrote in that, uh, Facebook post that yep. uh, you mentioned. Absolutely. All right. Let's say I'm talking to a bow hunter. I'm talking to a, a steel hunter. I'm talking to a, a spot and stalk hunter. I'm talking to somebody that loves to hunt, but doesn't use dogs. And their complaint is that dogs are an unfair advantage. Okay. So where I want to start is this. Let's talk about fair chase on the most basic, simple terms. And here's what it is. The fairest of all fair chases, the unarguable, um, undisputed and un, un, with the inability to argue against would be a human being with nothing but his bare fists and teeth. 
not even any clothes because clothes are man-made now. And he, he has to be naked too. He has to be naked. Yeah. So you need a naked man or woman, whatever you, whoever wants to go hunting and all they're allowed to use are their, their hands, their feet, their teeth, whatever they naturally are born with in nature. Now, can I pick up a I, rock? That's sort of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, if we can find a species out there for you to hunt that can fight back with rocks, yes, it would be fair. Okay. All but, right. with, but with humans having thumbs and dexterity and the mental capacity beyond uh, the other creatures, that might not even be a fair fight. So, you know, we're, what we're doing with fair chase is doing the, the fairest hunt possible. So that's naked and with fists and teeth. Well, that's absurd, obviously, but that's where right. you would have to start. So, when the bow hunter begins to add to his repertoire of things he's going to carry in the woods, he's going to add, of course, his bow and arrows. Well, that's going to give him an advantage of distance mm -hmm. because he can reach out much further with that than he can his arms. Right. And then he's going to get him a pair of binoculars. And so, whereas you and I might borrow the nose of a hound, he's going to borrow the eyes of an eagle. Mm-hmm he's going to be able to see things that he never would have been able to see before. He gets a spotting scope. Now he can see three or four miles to a sheep on a ridge that he never would have been able to pick out without it. Right. Right. The boots on his feet. Uh, they talk about hunters, you know, using vehicles. Well, some dude in Tennessee wants to go to Montana and kill an elk. He's already drove a $75,000 truck, 2,500 miles but he's aggravated that I will drive one another mile around to where dogs are treated. Mm. He's already used that. Then, uh, think about a guy who goes on a safari. He doesn't go to Africa, butt naked with fists and feet. He's going to fly in a multi-million dollar airplane across the water. He's not going to swim over there. So that's an advantage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he lands when he lands, he's picked up in a, in a, in a land Rover or some kind of, you know, vehicle that takes him out in the bush. There's an advantage because he's not walking to where he's going on his feet. And, uh, even if he did walk, he'd probably wear a $300 pair of boots. So he gets to where he's going and there he's got his guide, which is usually, you know, uh, some British dude. And then they'll have, uh, some, some Africans a couple porters, two or three porters to carry his stuff for him. Mm -hmm. Then he'll have a couple trackers. Well, those trackers are hunting his game down, find his game that literally all that dude has to do is be quiet. They're hauling him where he needs to go, taking him where he needs to be, setting him up for the shot. And then if he messes things up, they'll protect him. So the animal don't get him. And that guy's upset because I've got a collar on my dog. Hmm. I mean, the, the amount of equipment and, uh, well, even a GPS, uh, that a backcountry person would use, you know, in the cellway or using the Bob Marshall, right? He's not using his own innate natural, uh, honing, homing instinct. He's got technology. He's got a watch. It tells him what time it is. The amount of money and the amount of technology that every hunter uses is immense. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, they'll look over at a guy with a dog and say, foul, foul, that's no good. That's absurd. It's 100% absurd. It's, 
it's uh, hypocrisy at its absolute finest. And we need to fight back on that. You know, when the guy says that dog's cheating, you need to look back at him and say, man, you've got seven, uh, you've got $7,000 worth of equipment on your person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you start thinking about it. You look at some of the programs out there that give you satellite imagery and, uh, there's plenty of stuff out there, both in YouTube and social media and on podcasts talking about using that technology to find natural pinch points and places where you're more likely to see, uh, more game and, and different things like that. So, you know, how can we, on one hand, uh, the, the, the rule makers step back and saying, Hey, a GPS collar on a dog is, you know, to locate game may not be fair chase when everything we're doing in this world is, is technology, technology driven now, you know, um, yeah. it's crazy. And, and if you go, and so that's just a technological argument and they're dead wrong about it. They're dead wrong about the GPS and we can come back to that later, but Another thing they're wrong about is the game itself. They're saying it's not fair to the game to use a dog, but you've got to stop for a moment and just think about what you're saying. Uh, stand hunters are primarily using uh, the methodology of not being detected. They have to go undetected. Mm -hmm. And a spot and, and stop guy, a spot and stop guy, is primarily using the same methodology of going undetected, although he may move at times. Right but they're, they're still counting on not being seen or smelled. Right. Yeah. All right. So for them to kill that animal with that methodology, that animal cannot know they're anywhere in the world mm -hmm. with the exception of long range shooters who, uh, you know, an animal could look at him, you know, 800 to 1,000, 1200 yards away and, and not in his mind, not feel any danger at all, because how could that thing over there bother him? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so exactly there's no reason for him to run there's no reason for him to be afraid then all of a sudden you know a 6.5 blitzes through his rib cage he said he sensed no danger whatsoever so that's fair chase uh bow hunter climbs up in a tree 30 or 40 feet gets completely above the animal you know that animal and they say well that's that's not really unfair. Well, there's a reason you're up there, man, besides the fact you just like to sit in trees. You know it's an advantage. <laughs> of course, and it's an advantage. Right. And you're, you're getting above the wind currents and everybody, above the eyesight. You know that. And uh, you can name a dozen other things. So sure. Here, sure. here's a hound guy goes and turns loose a hound. The minute that animal realizes that that animal is on his trail. He has every advantage in the world. So the hound to, guy to me, uh, he's no better off in methodologies because the animal is now fully aware of what's going on. Then you have the topography to deal with. Yeah. And, uh, one of the articles I'd like to write for bear hunter magazine, I want to write one called, uh, life in the hell holes because a stand hunter or a, or a, even a spot and stalk guy, he has some say over where he's willing to go. Now, he may be a Cameron Haynes guy who chooses to go the worst place as possible because the dude can run 26 miles. Every day on his lunch All break. Right. 
Yeah, that's lunch a lunch break right. <laughs> but the 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 average steel hunter, the average spot stock guy, there's just some places he's not gonna go. He's gonna look at that and say, uh, that's where they live. I'm gonna hunt over here. Right. But the hound guy, he has no say on where he ends up at. And often a bear, a lion, a bobcat, uh whatever, they're going to the worst hell all around and they're gonna stay in it. And if you're going to go in and harvest it, you're going in with them. Right. And then after you, if you do kill them in there, then you got to bring them out of there. And so we did a podcast about that a couple of weeks ago too. Yeah. Te- technology, technology is not an advantage for us. Everybody has advantages in technology unless they're butt naked and bare fisted. Methodology is not an advantage for us because the animal knows he's being pursued. And, and topography is actually to our detriment because we don't get to choose where we go. Right. Right. So all of those are arguments to say to the other methodologies, y'all are just dead wrong and you need to stop throwing us to the wolves and take up for us while we take up for you unless I'll defend each other. Well, that was going to lead me into my next, uh, my next topic or the thing to discuss here, Tracy. I know I know how you feel. I know what your heart is. And, and I think overall, it's just like, Hey, go hunt your deer. However you want. This is yeah. how, just don't tell me that, that what I'm doing is wrong. Don't, don't make me your sacrificial lamb so that you can be, you know, you can extend your, your hunting season to five more days. Um, you know, things like that. Is that, is that pretty close? Yeah. Um, I'm for, and people need to listen to this. I'm for legal methodologies, whether I want to participate in it or not. Right. I'm also for some illegal methodologies based on just philosophical principles, even though I don't recommend violating the law. For instance, it's illegal to run a bear with dogs in California, but I'm still for running bear with dogs in California, even though it's not legal to do it. I'm not saying you should go do it because you should, you know, you don't want to be in jail and in court. Right. But their law against town hunt is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we, that's what we talk about here all the time. You know, just be, um, we've got to continue to, to, we can't give up. We can't, we can't stop, uh, pursuing the abilities to do those things. I'm all about restoring freedom. And, and, um, yeah, there, yeah there's, I'm a, all about it. there's another thing I'll bring into this too, that I haven't really heard addressed much. And that is the complaints of private property owners and hounds being on their property. And this is a touchy subject for several reasons. So first of all, I'll say, I respect property, pro- I, I respect private property ownership and I'm personally not going on somebody else's property without permission, unless it's just an absolutely insane emergency situation. Like if my grandchild run on their property and was drowned in a Creek, I'm not going to go look for written permission to run over and get my grandkid. Right. Right. Okay. So other than some kind of emergency situation, I'm going to respect private property if it's at all possible. However, I think private property owners, especially in America should realize that there's a lot of us and we need to be kind to each other. Um, if my neighbor's bull gets out and comes over on my property, which he has several times, I don't shoot my neighbor's bull. 
I called my neighbor and said, hey, listen, your boy uh, got on my place. We're going to try to put him back up. Just wanted you to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. That's being a neighbor. If, if my neighbor's kid sneaks over to the house and goes fishing in the pond, first of all, he's going to have permission if he asks, because I'm not telling a kid they can't hunt right, or, or fish. But even if he snuck over and fished in, in the pond and caught some fish and I found out about it, all I'm going to do is say, hey, hey, buddy, next time ask because I want to know you're up there. Yeah. I'm not going to freak out and call the law and try to have that kid put in jail and bless the parents out and all that garbage. Um, if another group of bear hunters, I've got some property up on the mountain. If another group of bear hunters drive up through there and they strike a bear that happens to be next to where we own property and they turn loose on it, I'm not going to be mad about it. I'm going to say, y'all have, did you do good? Did you catch it? Cause that's just being a good neighbor. But what I don't think Americans understand a lot about private property is this. All of us in, in a certain sense are living on lands. Even if we pay the payments and the taxes on it, that used to belong to somebody that didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and you talk about public land up here, like the Smokies, do you know how many families were displaced in the Smoky mountains? Just so you can have a national park. There was a lot of families that didn't want to move out of the Smokies, didn't want to move out of places like Cades Cove that the government said, we're going to have this for the public benefit and y'all are getting off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, road systems. Everybody drives a road every day that used to belong to somebody else that didn't want to sell it, but the government took it through eminent domain. So even though you should be protective of your property, you should also be willing to share it because frankly, all of us use land every day that somebody didn't want to give up. I've never met, you know, I was in this business for a long time. It felt like I was a referee a lot of times between different landowners. And I've never found a landowner that didn't eventually need the help of his neighbor at some point. And when you start putting up your castle walls and thinking that you can be self-sufficient, it's unre- unrealistic. Because sooner or later, a tree is going to fall from your property onto the neighbor's property, and you're going to need your neighbor's help to fix the fence uh, because your your cows are going to be over there or his cows are coming over to your place. And uh, even even in times of, of like natural disaster, when we've had uh, tail ends of hurricanes blow all the way up through here through Indiana and all the roads are shut down, my neighbor can't get out and the county is so swamped, the government is so swamped that they can't do it. And the community comes together to clean up the community. So, um, yeah, it's totally unrealistic to think that we can live on these little islands and, and not depend on anybody for anything in these day, in this day and age, even, even when they were settling that country that you're in right there, a neighbor was a valued commodity you know, somebody that could, could help them mark hogs and, and, uh, you know, or barter with down the road, maybe their wife spun wool and, and, and you, your son chopped firewood, you know, we're, we're getting totally away from that in our country. That's for sure. Yeah. The only, that's not necessarily under the auspices of fair chase, but I bring it up because it's one of the arguments used against hound hunting by people that it's an encroachment on it's just an encroachment on, uh, private land. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and so, I think I, I would get out there too, 
that if you're one of those guys that that doesn't take time to to get permission and you're making it hard on me because you are impeding and trampling on people's rights and you don't have the common courtesy and the decency to be a man or a, a, a true sportsman or a sportswoman and go talk to the landowner prior to just dumping a truckload of hounds on them, go find something else to do. I, we really don't need you adding fuel to the, to their fire. The Houndsman XP podcast network is powered by Cajun lights. All of your lighting needs for hunting can be taken care of at Cajun Lights. They have three models of cap lights. I'm going to run through them real quick. You've got the Rogueroo, which is their high-end light. If you're a competition hunter and you got to find that coon up in a tree and it's all riding on finding that coon, you'll want the Rogueroo on your head. Next is the Bayou. That's a pretty standard light, but it's got packed with features. It's got multiple colors. It's got walking lights. It's got the red, the green, the amber. It's all built in right into that light. And then you have one of my personal favorites, the Micro Gator. The Micro Gator is an ultra lightweight cap light. It's got all the features of a white light, red, green, and amber. I've used this light for everything from finding bear tracks early in the morning to coon hunting at night to working on plumbing in the house, changing tires on the side of the road. My truck doesn't leave the driveway without a Cajun light in it. And that light is the Micro Gator. Every Cajun light is durable, made from the highest quality components, and it is backed by Cajun's top-rated customer service. Check out Cajun Lights. You can go to our website at houndsmanxp.com. Go to our sponsors page. Hit that link. It'll take you right to Cajun Lights. Check them out. They got a lot of stuff to offer over at Cajun Lights. Hey, hold on there. We'll be right back to the show. Do not hit that fast forward button. We got to pay these bills, folks. And it really isn't even paying bills with this first one. It's just doing the right thing. Right now, Freedom Hunters just dropped their live auction. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes. We're talking about all kinds of cool hunting gear that they've got online to help raise funds for freedom hunters. It's in relation with their Jim Shockey Classic that they're going to hold this weekend down in South Carolina. You can find all that information out if you go to houndsmanxp.com or freedomhunters.org. If you go to our website, you can hit or hit the link over there to Freedom Hunters, or you can go direct to Freedom Hunters and get all the information you need. That's freedomhunters.org. Make sure you're bidding high and bidding often. A lot of cool stuff over there, stuff you're going to use anyway, stuff you're going to need, and maybe some things that you've always wanted that maybe you don't really need. You can still get it right there in that auction. There's over 200 items on that auction. Check them out. The other one is Dogs Are Treed. When's the last time you went to that website? Kevin and Nancy were just with me out in Cody, Wyoming for Larry Anderson's memorial service they drove all the way up through a blizzard they closed the passes behind them to get up there to kalispell they drove from income all the way up there to support another houndsman that's pretty pretty amazing that they would do that 
They're also sending out tons of gear to your field trials and your banquets and all those sort of things too, tie-outs and leashes and all kinds of stuff. They're just sending that out. I was in Michigan at the Michigan Bear Hunters Association. I'm walking down the line, dropping my tickets in for these raffle items, and here's Dogs Are Treat gear. Sent a whole tie-out system out there. So two great organizations that support your lifestyle. You need to check them out. I hope you haven't fast-forwarded through this ad and skipped through. You need to support these folks. Freedom Hunters and Dogs Are Treed. All right, so we got interrupted there by, uh, let's just call it life. That's right. <laughs> we got interrupted by life in that that spirited conversation there. But um, I think we I th- we've we've covered a lot of lot of ground here, Tracy. But um, what's your final word on the on the fair chase deal? Um. You know, how do we as houndsmen be effective? How do we affect change of that perception from other hunters? I get that's that's really what I want want to hear your thoughts on. Well, I have several thoughts. One is this: we've got to stop being ashamed of who we are. Mm. I feel like sometimes there's a sense among hound people that we've actually adopted the way other people think about us. What do you mean? And what do you mean? Like, what do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, it's almost as if we want to hide. Uh, don't, don't post any pictures. Uh, don't, uh, openly talk in front of the state legislatures about hound hunting. Just, Try not to bring it up, and maybe the anti-hound people won't know we're out here. Mm. And hiding only works until they find you. Yeah. And at some point, they find you. And the very fact that you tried to hide gives this sense that you're ashamed of who you are. And I think we need to be proud that we're hound people. I have absolutely no shame in it whatsoever. I believe it's the greatest methodology on the face of the earth. Not to discredit other methodologies, but just as much as a bow hunter like Fred Bear would call bow hunting, hunting the hard way. Mm-hmm. I believe hound hunting is actually hunting the hard way. There's a perception among some people that all hound hunters are slobbish road men that sit in the truck and eat and talk on the radio and wait till a bear runs out in front of the truck. And you and I both know that there's not an ounce of truth to that for the people who are the actual hunters. Right. If if there's somebody who's an absolute slob, he's not a representation of the men in the woods who do all the work. And I can promise you this. Now I'm not the example I'm trying to use here because I have had issues for years and, uh, I'm not the, uh, epitome of houndsman that people ought to look to as an example of what a houndsman is. Mm-hmm. But mentioned my son earlier, I promise you, I could take just about any bow hunter or any stand hunter or any steel hunter that you want to bring any of them and put them with, uh, I could say Ben, or I could probably pick out two or three other men. And if they hunted with them for a week, I promise you their idea of hound hunting would not be that it's lazy slops. Right. Right. It'd be, it'd be walking bow legged through my front yard 
wondering how they was going to get it in the truck the next day. Yep. Yeah. And there's thousands of other houndsmen just like them. We get opportunity to talk to a lot of them. I think, I think a lot of times what people see, you know, if you're just, if you're driving down a, a mountain road, you know, on a Saturday afternoon with your family, you're seeing just a very small part of what's actually going on. You know, the guy that you, that they see sitting in the truck, maybe like your, like your grandfather Barry was, you know, he was 83 years old and, uh, he'd already done his time in the mountain mile upon mile upon mile in those mountains. And he just wasn't physically able to do that anymore. And we talk a lot about the value of those guys that, um, uh, are maybe past their prime and just physically can't do it anymore, but they're still there because they love it. And so there's a number of reasons they may be sitting in the truck. They, they may they have been may, gutted three hours before that, you know, yeah. there's a number of reasons for that, but you know, they could be, there's disabled people who just like to participate in the hunt. There are men like my grandfather who had paid his dues for years that still wanted to participate in the hunt. There are sometimes people who bring their whole families and somebody's in the vehicle watching the kids. Yep. Um, so the, the people in the truck are not a representation of the guy in the woods who's literally, in my personal viewpoint, the closest thing to the Davy Crockett's and Daniel Boone's in modern America that you can find. Uh, it's hardcore. I mean, the, the true houndsman is a rare breed and he's a hardcore individual. And there's just not many people who could keep up with him. And so he don't have, he has nothing to be ashamed of. Right. The, the second thing that I would say about it is we need to be more proactive in how we present ourselves to other hunting methods. And I mean by that, don't ever take any bull crap off of them. When a bow hunter and I'm for bow hunt. So I'm just saying in defending ourselves, if somebody says something smart, like, well, hound hunting is the easy way. Don't just take that answer that back, challenge that and, uh, go into some of the arguments about the technology and the methodology and the topography and the places that you have to go and let them understand that's not how this works. And you guys are dead wrong. Well, I think, I think you need to teach us how to do that, Tracy. You know, you get, you get told that and then what does Tracy Jones, what is your reply to that? Well, my reply to that is going to be basically, uh, what I've already written in mm -hmm. some of the Facebook posts. And, uh, but the simple reply really is this it's say, Hey, listen, there's no way that I can in words, get you to understand that you're wrong. But if you'll come and hunt with us for a few days, I want you to see firsthand why you're wrong. And if they're not willing to come and experience it for themselves and see it, they're just not, they're just not, uh, what I would call an honest actor. They're right. just, they're just a mouth. And, and, and they're not, they're not worth your energy to try to convince them that they're wrong. A fool's never going to, going to admit no. that they're wrong. No, no, not at all. And <laughs> the general public, uh, you know, the statistics that the, guy I read on your other podcast about fire chase what they i think y'all said about 70 percent of the general public is 
favorable to hunting. They're not against it and so forth. So the, the die car, the die hard anti hunter, they're really in the minority, right. but we treat them like they're in the majority. Hmm. Um, they're not a majority. They're a very, very small minority that just has big mouths and a lot of money. That's so the, a big deal right there. So the people we've got to deal with are the other hunters to make sure they don't throw us under the bus and really your state legislatures, you need to be friends with your state legislature. I mean, I have my state legislature's numbers in my phone and I can call them today. They'll answer the phone or call me back. I can talk to them people. You want to be friends with those people because they're, they're who makes the decisions. You know, the, in the state of Tennessee, the governor appoints a council of people to make wildlife decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, your local hunting organization needs to know who those people are. Don't just show up at a, at a generalized meeting because almost nothing's ever decided in those except for who has the biggest mouth. What you want to do is make friends with those people behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, we've had state legislature come up and hunt with us and, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, Maybe, maybe to give some insight to what you're saying, I know firsthand I've been in those fish and wildlife council meetings and different things. And they have the time when, when uh, they limit people's time, we'll open the floor up to comments. Everybody has two minutes and they've got to do that to meet their obligations statutorily for making those rules. But I also know that after the meetings up, the people sitting on that panel, they pull people aside. And most of those decisions are not made in that room. They're made uh, through relationships and people that they trust. They may hear a valid point from maybe they've never heard of T.L. Jones before. And you get up and you make a valid point that piques their curiosity. Well, after that meeting, they're going to go over here to, to Bob Smith that they've got a longstanding relationship with that that may be able to uh, validate what you said, and then they're going to make the decision. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. It's based off relationships. And, uh, sometimes hound hunting people are not really good at the relationships and I'm, and I run the risk of making the people that I love most mad at me for saying this, but I'll say it anyways. Sometimes hound hunting draws the hardest core of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of hound hunters, they're still the old school kind of people that would rather fist fight you as talk with you. And the reason we, the reason hound hunting draws those kinds of people is because it's so hard. If you don't have the uh, die hard roughneck personality, you're just not going to make it in hound hunting. Not the, not the true houndsman. I mean, they're a rough bunch, but because they're a rough bunch, they're not always good at diplomacy. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you, you've got, we've got to learn to train ourselves that we're in a different world. Now we're not in the world where you face off with a dude and whoever whips the other one gets his way. We're in a world where two friends are going to decide whether you get the bear hunt for the rest of your life or not. Mm. And you need to make friends with those people for the right reasons, not phony friendships, but friendships for the right reasons and let them see who you are 
and come and stay with your family, come and hunt with you, invite them to hunt with you. And uh, when you're when when their phone rings and you're on the other line, they should want to pick it up to see what you have to say. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's all about making investments. If we if we all just went into this thing thinking, you know, how can I invest myself today to make this a better a better future for us? You know, sometimes that takes skipping a day of hunting to go to your local representative's fundraiser or, you know, where he can see you. Um, those are all important things. And if everybody just did a little bit, we could do a lot. It's really just as simple as asking the question, who in my state actually makes the decisions and how can I have an influence in their life when they make that decision? Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how it, really works behind the scenes and you know it as well as I know it. That's mm -hmm. how it works. So yeah. game wardens to me are extremely important because when when that private council of citizens makes their decisions in the state of Tennessee, they do take input from the average citizen, but they also take input from the TWRA. And the TWRA's input is weighted heavier than the average guys. Mm -hmm. Viewed as the experts. Well, with us, you have the go the game warden whose boots on the ground, and you have the biologist. The game wardens, for instance, they want the bear population to be lower because they hate to be called out in the middle of the night. Yeah, they don't want to talk to the farmer about the corn being eaten. They don't want to talk to the you know. There's a ton of stuff come that comes out of that. Right, and the biologist, if he's more science oriented he's more concerned about the, the, the nature, the natural aspect of it. The right, mm -hmm. I can't right word to come to mind. Um, the, I, I don't even know how to say it, but the biological aspect and the population numbers, mm -hmm. population dynamics, you know, total, total habitat management plans. You know, how does this bear population fit into our management plan that interacts with, ground nesting birds and fawn mortality rates. And, you know, you can go on and on and on with all that stuff. Yeah. And, and you need to, somebody in your state needs to look into the science that they claim to be using. Like for instance, the TWRA here published an article in their magazine called cultural carrying capacity, trying mm -hmm. to prove that we had too many bears in the state. Well, based on their idea, there was too many bears in Tennessee. They wanted to implement more, uh, still hunting opportunities to eliminate bears. We were concerned that the bear top population would be drastically lowered too quickly, uh, with extended seasons during the still hunt. So I went and talked to the biologist and the regional director privately because I wanted to talk to them without fighting with them. So in that conversation, I asked the biologist, I said, how many bear are in the state? Obviously, there's no way for him to know. I, I knew he didn't know when I asked him. Mm -hmm. So then I asked him, what methodology do you use to determine the numbers of bears in the state? And they were taking, at the time, uh, like uh, sardine cans and hanging them up in a line and seeing how many were hit. Well, you and I know one bear can, can take all those sardine cans out in a night. So that's right. really not scientific at all. So... 
the regional director didn't even know how they were going about it. And so I said, uh, well, so really you don't know the population. You don't have a scientific way to determine the population, but yet you're writing an article to influence people to lower the population and then making these new laws when this it's not really based on science at all. It's just based on perception. And, uh, so you have all these decisions taking place and you need to make sure that the science being presented is legit science mm-hmm. and then get that to the people who make the decisions like the, the panel of private citizens, you know, that the governor appoints. Right. Right. Well, I think to wrap it up, Tracy, I, I, you, you said something about, uh, you know, relationships and finding out who makes those, makes those decisions. And, um, you know, one of those groups that is influential in that decision-making just on their public policies and statements and their positions is the Boone and Crockett club along with many others. So this whole thing started with a conversation about Boone and Crockett club. What would you like to see, uh, be the result from this attention we've shit we've, we've, we've put on their policy about fair chase. What, what would you like to see as a result of that? Well, if I could sit down in a private conversation with the gentleman that you had on your podcast, the first thing that I would want to make sure that I didn't do was give the idea that I was anti Boone and Crockett club because that's mm-hmm. not the case. Right. This, the second thing I would want to do would be to impress upon him that if that group has that much influence on decision-making, they need to be sure their policies reflect what's actually true. And then I'd want to challenge him on the specifics of like the Garmin deal. You know, they're saying that the Garmin allows you in his words to locate the animal and drive closer to the animal. Okay. What the Garmin doesn't do is get you from the vehicle to the animal. See, the the assumption that you can get closer and make it easier is only an assumption in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Because I've told people this in some of the writings I've done. I haven't found a Garmin yet that I can ride to the tree. I'd like one that worked like a witch's broom. I'd like to build my garment on the bottom of my feet and it hover me off the ground about 10 feet and let me ride that sucker over these laurels and up the sides of these mountains and around these cliffs to get to the trees. That'd be awesome. That'd be truly an unfair. <laughs> so that's not how that works. And you know, and I know that's not how that works. Uh, it, it saves you some steps in the sense if you don't go to the places the dogs are not, but it doesn't make it any, uh, easier and getting to the dogs where they are when they're in a hard place. Right. So that's to me, just, uh, baloney It's especially baloney in, in this sense. And, and this is where I would want to say it, but I wouldn't want to offend the people who are making these decisions. I mean, he said there's only a hundred people allowed to be a member of that club. To me, that's hogwash. I mean, you got a hundred people making decisions for millions of hunters have an influence for millions of hunters and it's an exclusive club 
to, I, I just find it preposterous in a, in a, in a, in a situation like the United States where I got a hundred dudes, uh, determining whether my Garmin gives me an unfair advantage or not. Mm -hmm. but, but if I'm talking to them, I want to look at that guy sitting across the table from me and say, I heard you went on a safari last year. Yeah. you take a plane over there? Yes, sir. Did you hire a guide? Yes, sir. Did you have people carry your stuff? Yes, sir. Did you have trackers? Yes, sir. Then I'm going to look and say everything that you hired people to do, me and my dog do here. I carry my own pack. I walk on my own feet. I find my own tracks. And when that dog trees that thing, I don't have porters getting me to the tree. I don't have somebody holding right. a shooting stick for me. And the, the scrap, in fact, it is so difficult to hunt here in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina, these mountains. There's not many people who do it past the age of 60. I can attest to that. Uh, they can still go. And sometimes they can get to a tree, but most of the time you get past 60 around here and you're pretty well done for. Yeah. Time's a ticking for me. That's for sure. So that's what I'd want to address with those people. I mean, you got all this influence with these uh, state game people calling you. You've got to be wise in how you do it and make sure that you're not sacrificing us for your good because and, and and the reason is because you're just wrong about the way we go about our stuff yeah yeah well my yeah uh i think that's well put tracy i was going to add some stuff but i don't know what i could possibly add to that so i i, I would like to add this to the end of it before we hang up if you don't yes, mind. sir yes sir go ahead I, I would like to add this and i don't say this with any sense of arrogance because i don't claim to be a Daniel Boone or a Davy Crockett. I don't even claim to be a Barry Tarleton or a Terry Jones. I mean, I'm, I was the least of the hunters in one family. I'm certainly not the greatest of hunters among those that are listening to this podcast. But what I would say is this hound hunting as a methodology is by far the greatest methodology on the face of the earth. It is superior to still hunting It's superior to stand hunting is superior to spot and stalk. It is fair chase. It is the epitome of fair chase. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We ought to have hats, t-shirts, brochures, and everything under the sun saying, you know, hound hunting. This is how fair chase really happens. Mm -hmm. And present our viewpoint from the perspective of how we actually see it rather than letting the way other people see it be imposed upon us. And I don't like the word sport. It's a totally different subject, but from my personal philosophy of hunting, I don't view hound hunting as a sport. And the reason is, is because I don't think something that ends in the death of a creature should be considered a sport. To me, football's a sport. Baseball's a sport. Right. Is a sport. Hunting ends in the death of a creature. To me, it's a, it's a sacred pursuit. And that's the reason I use that word. I, I view for me personally, hunting as an interaction with the creator who created the world that I exist in, who created the animals that are in the world, who placed me among them, who gave me the directive to participate in hunting and taking that meat and using that for my own, uh, 
consumption and uh, it's not church. That's a totally different subject, but it is an interaction with the God who made me. And when I harvest an animal, I don't stand and rejoice and give high fives and show gang symbols. Right. To me, I've pulled the trigger on a life that's now ended. It's not the same as a human life, but it's a life. And my heart is in gratitude to the creator who gave me the breath to be there and gave the animal in that situation that I can then have that for meat or whatever. And that to me, that is a sacred pursuit. It is, it is not a sport. And I believe that's the right way to present that to the, that 70% who's not against hunting that we're not out here high-fiving each other and doing backflips and, you know, getting our little macho machismo off because we're hunters. Right. We're interacting in the natural world and, uh, it's sacred to us. In fact, I personally, if I'm, if I'm ever put in a place to have to sue over this, I'm going to sue on religious grounds that it's part of my religious freedom. Interesting. I think, I think the whole sacred pursuit, uh, topic, I think we can make another podcast out of that. I think it's valuable. I like the message. I really, I really like, uh, like that when I saw it come coming off of your uh, posts and stuff, it makes a lot of sense. You know, we use the term lifestyle just because sport is something that, um, you know, I played football in high school. I'm not, I'm not playing football. I didn't play football past, past high school. Um, and, and being a houndsman is a lifestyle. It takes dogs. Don't feed themselves. They don't care for themselves. They don't, you know, they don't train themselves. They don't get themselves to the, you've got to be invested in this thing in a way that, that is a lifestyle and it not only affects me, but it affects my family. It affects my finances. You know, you've got to be all in if you're going to be effective, it's got to be a lifestyle for you. Yeah. I I heard Steve Ranella one time, uh, giving a defense for, uh, farm hunters who basically, you know, groom their piece of property to farm deer. They named their deer, you know, Mr. Buckeye long time, you know, Uh and then they go out and shoot that animal. And his defense of that was the man hours that it takes to cultivate that property, to harvest that animal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that's a good defense of that methodology. And I could say the same thing about hound hunting, the man hours and the investment that it takes to be a houndsman to me is unparalleled with any other methodology. Agreed. No argument here. Well, Tracy, we say we wrap this one up. You and I, you you and I have talked, I don't even know how many months of conversation we've had between us over the years, but, uh, we sure can't cover it all in one podcast. And, uh, but I, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, people can find your work in bear hunting magazine. Are you a regular columnist there now? Yes, sir. Great. That's a regular column and uh is it called sacred pursuit sacred pursuit is the name of the column and uh i write some stuff on my facebook page uh you know along these lines but i I will warn people that if you send me a facebook request and you're anti-religion you'll probably end up mad at me so (laughs) just (laughs) just just be wired just be wired if you go there you'll, you'll get both 
Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Tracy, I appreciate you joining us on the Houndsman XP podcast. I appreciate every one of you that is listening. Make sure you're checking out our website at houndsmanxp.com. And until next time, this is Fair Chase. Fair Chase.